Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Philippe, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Ascended masters, discarnate beings, living people hidden amongst the crowds. Crowley makes frequent reference to the secret chiefs and their purported guidance of humanity by various means. Edward Mason and I will take a look at just what these entities are and what we can say about them. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Welcome back. How are you doing, Edward? I'm doing pretty well here in Mexico, and I know since it's uh, January where you are, when you are recording this, that I'm in a slightly more pleasant climate <laughs> than you are at the moment, but I won't dwell on that too greedily. <laughs> it is fairly cold here, but uh, I'll uh, pretend really hard that it's not. Visualize heat, that's what I <laughs> exactly, say. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so for this one, I chose the most difficult topic I've come up with for a while, which is the the secret chiefs or the hidden masters, mm-hmm. a topic of which I have minimal personal interaction, but kind of fascinates me. A lot of people in the occult field have talked about this. Crowley in his confessions has 26 different references to the secret chiefs uh, in the, the index without ever really saying very much about who these characters were, but he insists repeatedly that he was being guided not by angelic forces or deities, but specific former human beings or current human beings in uh, some sort of non-physical form. We also have Madame Blavatsky's Mahatmas, a similar kind of idea, Dion Fortune has some descriptions about the three chiefs that uh, her order followed. And possibly one of the best documented stories is from Paul Foster Case with the Master R, whose voice he heard in his head for many years and figured, okay, this is some kind of spiritual beacon sending me messages, and whom he insists that in the 1920s, He actually met for a two-week intensive in a train under a hotel in New York at the location where the Empire State Building is now. Hmm. So it's not something that the most flaky, self-promoting, you know, egomaniacs looking for a big bank account have gotten into. This is something coming from some of our most respected and most capable occult sources. And I looked at this and thought, I'm a deeply skeptical person. Always, I probably hampered myself with my own skepticism far more than I needed to, but I think that kind of goes with Thelema. Mm-hmm. You know, if you believe anything, then you can believe anything. <laughs> but I've tried to understand what's going on here. Uh, but there's a clear difference between having a 
contact with an angelic being or an archangel or some form of deity or so, or even an elemental spirit, which is a, you're dealing with a natural force. It, the presence, the impact of that encounter will open up certain kinds of knowledge in you. A lot of so-called occult knowledge simply is sort of absorbed by osmosis there. Now, when you're dealing with something equivalent to a secret chief, you are dealing with a rather human-like entity. I don't want to say personality, because I imagine a lot of these beings don't really have personalities except something from their human existence that they choose to continue using. Their job is almost to be, in a very specialized sense, therapists. They guide the aspirant to avoid certain errors. They guide the, the, the seeker to look for the areas where they can be most effective or whether they're, where they're most needed. And they begin to nudge people along with very specific comments. So they're not therapists in the usual sense and nowhere near that empathetic, but they do prod people to go, you know, to boldly go where no occultist has gone before or at least hasn't gone recently. So they're rather different to a lot of the guidance that... Uh, would come from simple, regular invocation. Now, if in very general terms, we say that the experience of the Holy Guardian Angel would include all of the experiences that come to us in life, obviously that would include bringing in some kind of no longer in a body entity that will guide us when we get stuck or when we need to make a major leap. This is not the same thing as knowledge and conversation, which I would argue is a mystical and also a magical experience and might involve no direct verbal interactions at all. Don't want to say more on that because everybody's experience of knowledge and conversation is extremely individual and you shouldn't start laying down rules for that. Mm -hmm. But there are these encounters that people have and that they insist were very transformative because they were dealing with somebody, I have to say person, even if this is something not necessarily still in anything we recognize as a body. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with somebody who can provide specific guidance, specific instruction, specific leadership that prevents the, the occultist from going nuts, which is a, you know, a favorite thing for occultists to do when they get too carried away with their own direction through life. Yeah, it sounds like the type of thing where you're, you're just as liable to be getting voices that will constitute going nuts as, you know, actually getting messages from the secret chiefs. So I could see where this is a potentially finicky subject as well. You would have to continue using basic skeptical caution here. Um, we're always told, try the spirits, question the spirits. And you would have to ask this entity that is talking to you, are you really some psychological entity 
related to my abusive third grade teacher or my horrible stepfather? Um, or are you actually something who can offer me something useful? And the being would have to provide some kind of indication that what's coming across is useful. Mm -hmm. Crowley, you know, throughout all these references, he's very evasive about saying who these secret chiefs were, but he insists that he was always guided by them. Here's a quote from chapter 50 of his confessions. The responsibility of this, apart from anything else, was sufficient to stagger me. I've been taught to dread the results of publishing the least part of the secret knowledge. In unworthy hands, the most appalling mischief was only likely to ensue. I have been almost absurdly scrupulous with regard to the secrets entrusted to me. Indeed, my experience had already shown me what shocking messes have been made by apparently trivial indiscretions on the part of others. I was not even proud that the choice of the secret chiefs had fallen upon me. I was too well aware of my incapacity and indolence. But here he is being told to publish all the stuff from the Golden Dawn because people are going to need this stuff later on and it shouldn't remain in this small private club. Um, so he's always dealing with this with a certain kind of fear and nervousness um, at the same time that he's forging ahead. I guess most occultists face this kind of a paradox. On the one hand, we want to boldly go into the unknown region. And on the other hand, there's always this how nuts am I going question. Mm -hmm. I don't know that most magicians entirely resolve this issue for ourselves. We always find ourselves at times getting a bit lost and then getting back on the track again. It's part of the education of dealing with a world that is related to the non-physical. I've always been really fascinated and captivated by the, the Kabbalistic idea of the four worlds. I've talked about that more on other podcasts we've done. Mm -hmm. Because it, when I began to feel that I was getting through from the realm of everyday manifestation, the world of Asiya, into the astral realm, the realm of Yetzira and formation, at least intermittently, I was starting to have a different kind of dialogue with life in general. And you can only talk to these secret chiefs using talk in a very odd sense if you have moved a bit beyond the regular physical realm of things and you're willing to listen to crazy ideas, knowing that they convey a symbolic meaning. You learn to speak symbolese and to know that a specific piece of information could have various aspects to it and various symbolic significances. So if you're going to be dealing with these discarnates, that's what you would have to start doing, opening yourself to that. Mm -hmm. Again, I stress I can only think of one possible situation where I might have been contacted by them directly, um, which... These, you know, Dion Fortune talks about meeting some one, one of her guides in a park. Madame Blavatsky met her Mahatmas in the London Park as well. It seems to happen in parks. Now, 
my one encounter that fits this category happened not in a park, but in downtown Toronto in the Eaton Centre about six or eight weeks after I'd been uh, initiated into a Thelemic order. So, you know, I'm all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I'm ready to, to learn amazing stuff, and I've already memorized the Hebrew alphabet or most of it. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm poised to take off. <laughs> so I get out of the train, and I'm on the platform, and you go through glass doors from the Dundas subway station into the Eaton Center. And you know how the... The trains cause a suction. It makes it hard to open the doors. Mm -hmm. Okay, so suddenly I see somebody going ahead of me through a door. He's already opened a door. I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow him. And it's a guy who's a bit shorter than me wearing a black leather coat. And suddenly he turns round and looks at me and says, you need to go through your own door. Well, I looked at this annoying little man. He had a middle European accent. I mean, the master R, Paul Casey's guy, he's from somewhere in Central Europe. And I'm looking at this guy and thinking, oh, will you get out of my freaking face? Just, just you know, get out of the way. I'm trying to go through a door. So I give him a very sarcastic expression. He actually flinched because I was so angry at the silliness of this that it, I probably, he probably thought I was about to hit him. But he wouldn't move out of the door. So finally, I made a condescending face at him, stepped aside, opened my own door, walked through, turned to look at him to say, are you satisfied? And he wasn't there. <laughs> now, okay, there are several possibilities. One is I'm hallucinating. Number two, um, there's an awful lot of crazy people walking around a big city. <laughs> downtown and it's quite possible he was a nut job except that he seemed to be fairly well dressed and therefore not a homeless person third thing maybe i'd flashed out of regular consciousness into some sort of in-between state mm -hmm. point is that whole a very simple statement you need to go through your own door hmm is a total summary in four or five or six words of orthelemic philosophy. Hmm. It still puzzles me. I wish I could remember more details. I just remember the station, the guy in a black coat, man, late 50s, early 60s, slight accent, and that brief statement to me and him flinching when I had this angry look on my face. <laughs> which is not the way you're supposed to respond to hidden chiefs. I mean, you're supposed to be deferential, and I was extremely rude, which might be why I've never had such an encounter again. <laughs> but I've got a feeling that other people have very similar things happening. You know, that when you're dealing with non-physical realities, they're not constrained to one particular body, one particular voice box, one particular brain. Crowley talks about this occasionally where things were coming through his wife, Rose, just before the giving of the Book of the Law. You know, she was not behaving rationally, mumbling about it's all about Osiris, it's all about Horus, they're waiting for you. You know, these were incoherent statements because she was under the influence of this aeon about to burst forth when Crowley jotted down 
the actual book of the law. So kind of space-time gets bent a bit here. That's my one anecdote of, yes, I might have met a secret chief unless he happened to be a homeless person or I'd gone slightly crazy. <laughs> but I think while we are not going to be contacted by such beings very often, there needs to be a willingness to do the opposite of what I did and be prepared to receive guidance if it does come in odd ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always important, I think, when you're studying occultism, not to think, I, I, I want to meet a master of the temple who's going to explain everything to me. You've already, you know, if you're initiated into the system, they'll give you a whole load of rituals and papers and tell you books to read. You've already got most of the information that you need to spend a few years memorizing. You need to know the tree of life. You need to know the archangels, the colors, what the color system on the tree is all about. You need the Hebrew alphabet and you need some gematria, so you need some to learn some significant numbers and so on and so on. You're not ready to receive information directly from somebody who is an ascended being. At the same time, everyone who's ever done anything significant in occultism seems to have had some sort of contact on that basis. Some being who is not an ordinary mortal entity has shown up and said, listen, I got to give you a lecture about what the next step is. So that's you know, what has been fascinating me. And of course, wondering if I will ever again um, encounter a short man with an <laughs> East European accent in the Eaton Center. The fact that I don't live anywhere near the Eaton Center isn't helping me. But, you know, it's it still fascinates me that that happened and there was a communication. The sense that I have on the subject is that it seems as though, like, we as individuals may be used as pawns in some greater chess game, and they may not need to put us to any particular use that we can immediately see, but they can nudge us here and there as necessary. And I think that's what they're meant to do, to keep us on a certain track. Um, yeah, when you get into occultism, you know, Thelemic occultism, just as much as any other school, you're required to serve the, the great order. <laughs> you can't just come in and do whatever you want with this um, you're going to end up as a black brother if you do that. Hmm. You need to recognize that you are going to have to align with your true will, which will have certain abilities. Crowley talks about the fact that he was chosen by the secret chiefs because he had an, a facility with language. He was able to produce a huge amount of inspired poetry, the holy books, rituals, and books of instruction hmm. that we're still using now. You know, I've got a dozen of them on the bookshelf behind me. So those were, that was the part of the particular capability that he possessed. Pace was a much more methodical guy. I think perhaps a better organizer of things than Crowley. He just seemed to be a little more precise, a little more comfortable in the everyday world. Um, he held down a regular type of job as a musician, so he he was had a different function. Um, Dion Fortune was somebody who was 
working with a specific set of British mysteries. So perhaps not as applicable in the North American context as Case or Crowley or others, but she also left a lot of information about how to work with a group mind, how to manage an order, how to guide an order as a whole entity. So that was the area where she was expressing her true will. And the these beings, Mahatmas, hidden secret chiefs, hidden chiefs, discarnate gurus, whatever you want to call them, push people in that direction. That's what happens here. Whether it's that directly experienced as a voice or whether it's more a kind of series of intuitions that come would depend on the person. Mm -hmm. But it is there, I think. And the longer people have been involved with the great work, the more they tend to find that they are going to be slotted into a particular job, possibly not as grandiose a task as we all think we have when we're starting out. You know, I'm going to be running an order with, with 14 lodges and 200 members, <laughs> and, you know, there's going to be so many amazing initiates come out from under my direction. It, nah, it, it's probably not going to work quite that well, mm -hmm. but you still have a, a job to do, and the great order is quite capable of working on a small scale as well as working on a big scale. This is all kind of loose. I realize it's hard to you know, come up with specific questions and points about this because you have to move into that Yetziratic consciousness. You have to start dealing with a more flexible or astral, poetic, artistic sensibility. Not everyone gets into the world of Yetzirah through actual magic. A lot of people get into it through music or painting or poetry or an ability to contemplate nature and to see the forces of nature moving fluidly through it. Depends on the person. Mm. It's, you know, Van Gogh, there you've got all those paintings where he was seeing something Yetzirah. They fascinate people, they sell for millions, but he couldn't even begin to express in words what he was experiencing. You look at a painting like Starry Night or those vibrant sunflower paintings, and you realize what he was seeing was something more than just the physical. He wasn't painting decorative stuff to put on the wall, even if it turned out to be decorative stuff to put on the wall. He was seeing the intensity of the life within mm -hmm. what he was depicting. So he was moving in his own Yetziratic world. I'm not trying to imply he was under guidance from anybody um, that's one of the liabilities of becoming an occultist. You then have someone who's going to butt in and say, listen, we need you to do certain things here. So whatever plans you had in mind, please shelve them for the next 30 years. We wanted a particular <laughs> job accomplished. Hmm. But that's, I think, what we're I'm trying to get at here, this idea that we get pushed in a particular direction. We get guided, and that might be on a very modest 
scale where rather than influencing hundreds of people, you're influencing half a dozen. That's fine. I remember uh, several years back when David Shoemaker was in town. Um, oh, incidentally, I guess he'll actually be in town coming up soon, and I think we'll have this episode out by the time uh, it'll be worth plugging that. <laughs> right, yeah, he's in town in March. Yeah, so uh, um, keep an eye out for him in town in March. Uh, in, he's here in support of uh, the Temple of the Silver Star. Um, but yeah, uh, he was in town several years back, and uh, he was, I, I think it was at that time that he was talking about the HGA experience, K&C, Knowledge and Conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, as sort of an interplay that was ongoing in the initial stages, and the actual KNC itself, like you'd have signals leading up to that and that sort of thing over the years, maybe increasing, um, but he compared it to sort of like flipping through a radio dial to uh, try and find a radio station, and you could sort of pick up some voices here and there, and then trying to hone in on the right station. Um, and I wonder if that's comparable to the uh, uh, the way that messages can come through from the secret chiefs as well. And maybe when they're when you're too obstinate or just need that immediacy of it, maybe they show up in the incarnate form. Um, yeah. I hope. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like to put myself as the expert on that one. I mean, some of these people, the Master R, when he showed up with Case, showed in fact he was uh, alive. I mean, Case says it was two weeks in this guy's private train getting massive input of information that he was to use with the builders of the Aditum and you know, with the rest of his life. So... The, the implication there is the Master R was like a Taoist immortal. He'd been alive for a long, long time. At the same time, it's quite possible to go into a very different state of consciousness. Um, I mean, from Case's story, he was in an isolated situation, a train in a sub subterranean train station for a couple of weeks. Occultists can get into pretty freaky states of consciousness for extended periods of time. It, trying to say exactly what is happening there is possibly a fool's game because you're referring the whole thing back to the world of concrete manifestations. Mm -hmm. David, was, I wasn't there for David's talk that time, but I've heard him speak on the KNC experience numerous occasions where obviously you've moved out of your regular intellectual, lineal, logical processes into a state where you're processing multiple inputs at the same time, so that you're working on more than one level with the information that's coming to you. I'd say that these discarnates, that's my... I'm, I'm using that term more than secret chiefs because even the guy I ran into in the Eaton Center, I would not want to say, hey, he was a secret chief. They wouldn't bother with me. I, I just got initiated. It's a little bit early to you know, intervene. But they're giving very specific information to stop you going in the wrong direction and push you in the right direction for their purposes. 
and obviously in accord with your true will ultimately but you, that might also be a direction that's a long way from your conscious desires and intentions so you're going to think well, ah, get out of my way hmm. um and have a little bit of a, a wrestling match with what you're told knc I would say is a lot is a huge amount of trial and error. Yes, you, you're fiddling around on a radio dial, trying to tune into the right information and time. At times, you get carried away. Our, you know, our imagination often misleads us when we get a germ of data. Something comes to us, and like the imagination thinks, "Wow!" and expands on that not in the optimal manner, getting that ability to narrow down the wavelength to just the specific zone of knowledge and understanding that that particular insight gives you is part of the art of becoming a truly effective initiate mm -hmm. and ultimately an effective teacher. Um, I'm giving you a rather circuitous response to that because I've don't know exactly how to answer the question. But there is definitely this sense that you need to be patient with yourself in order to accept what is given and let it percolate, stay with the idea and let it filter through over time so that all of the aspects of what was given can begin to affect your whole worldview. It's one of the problems, I think, trying to train magicians. People come in and think, what I want to get out of this is X, Y, and Z. And we have very fixed ideas of what it ought to be, what it is we're after, what, you know, and, and in the best sense, not I want to be a someone who can dominate other people and get revenge on all the people who weren't nice to be in high school. It's a matter of wanting to become a particularly useful person. But as you get into it more and more and the alchemical changes begin to happen, we find that there's more to the picture than we ever wanted to consider before. And a lot of the areas where we're going to be most useful and most effective aren't front and center in our thinking. Mm -hmm. They might appear to be distractions. We might think they're areas of weakness. You know, some Thelemites in particular feel they've got to be kind of macho. I, I, I read that second chapter of the book of the law and you know I, I, I'm going to be like that. And then you find that you're doing things like being compassionate to people and you think that's a weakness, um, which it can be if it's overdone, but there are certain times when providing good insight to students and friends is not weakness at all. It's just simply wisdom. Mm -hmm. So it's always this business of being open to the thing that you believe you don't want in order to learn the thing you need to become the thing that you most or ultimately want to become. Somebody with more ability to see situations, more ability to understand the multifacetedness of everything. 
and to be a bit more patient with the fact that the world can sometimes be a complete mess. Um, I, I quoted that passage from Crowley's Confessions earlier. Above that, he has this, I'll, I'll read two or three sentences here, where he writes, the secret chiefs had informed me that a new aeon implied the breaking up of the civilization existing at the time. Obviously, to change the magical formula of the planet is to change all moral sanctions, and the result is bound to appear disastrous. Um, I'm omitting a bit here. The nature of Horus being a force and fire, his aeon would be marked by the collapse of humanitarianism. The first act of his reign would naturally be to plunge the world into the catastrophe of a huge and ruthless war. Now, Crowley is writing that about uh, seven or eight years after the end of World War One, and he was assuming that was the, the thing. Mm -hmm. When we advance a century on and into our situation at the beginning of the vulgar year 2024, we're seeing an awful lot of frightening conflict happening as alliances, rule of law, respect for human rights seem to be under frightening attack at the moment. Mm -hmm. He was just being told, look, you know, stand back from this because we are changing the magical formula, everything is going to be changed and it seems to be disastrous. In a lot of mundane ways, it is frighteningly disastrous. But it is ultimately about a change in human consciousness, and it's an evolutionary step for all of humanity, which is very easy to say when I'm sitting comfortably, <laughs> you know, facing my computer this afternoon, and I'm not in one of these war zones where the drones are dropping bombs and the missiles are flying overhead. We come up against the dark stuff in magic. Magic is not evasion. It seems at first to offer a way through. It eventually pushes us to look at the world and also to accept that there's only so much we can do. But if we can do that small amount, then that was our particular contribution. Mm -hmm. And that is where true will comes in. You can't just have your true will in isolation. The first chapter of the Book of the Law applies also. We are part of this vast interwoven web of other stars all interacting with each other. And all we can do is brighten our own particular corner of the world as much as we are capable of doing during the course of one human lifetime. That is where these inner guidance messages begin to push us where we need to go. And as Crowley found, you know, they can scare the hell out of you. Hmm. Even in just small matters, you can feel, oh, I have to go and give a public talk. I have to go and instruct a whole load of people who are not going to be receptive here, but I've been asked to talk to a small group. Things like that. Um, learning to allow the universe to unfold as it needs to is you know, one of the big skills that Thelemites have to, to master. And these great initiates, we assume they're great initiates, these discarnates, are the people who can push us in that direction and say, do this anyway, you will survive. Mm -hmm. I guess bringing it back to that uh, 
analogy I was using of sort of a great overriding chess game. Um, mm. If you think of your place within the overall scheme of things, it's like uh, it seems like a big part of what Thelema is about is learning to understand your place within the greater scheme of things and to take it seriously and do that and nothing else. And do nothing else, which is... I know I've spent you know nearly thirty years in this game at this point, and there's always this feeling of uh, I'm nearly ready to get started now <laughs> because it, there's just so much you realize that you have to bring into alignment in order to be effective as a teacher, magician, thelemite in general. Mm-hmm. But each step you take is another step taken. I'm really coming out with the profound wisdom this afternoon, <laughs> but it, that, that is something that I think we have to learn bit by bit and acknowledge that there are limitations on what each of us is capable of pulling together. It is a kind of a strange area that you can only begin to comprehend when you've gone into a, a yet seratic zone of consciousness where you're dealing with a more loose and symbolic framework. Mm-hmm. So making very concrete statements about it is rather hard. I'm just recommending that people go through Crowley's confessions and see what he has to say about the secret chiefs and the different uh, mm-hmm. and the different is. I suppose he refers to it in the uh, Magic Without Tears as well. There's a couple, a letter or two in there that uh, he makes reference to them. He makes references there. Dion Fortune has some irritatingly evasive information. She always pulls back just before Hmm. saying too much. We do have Paul Clark's biography of Paul Foster Case. So the whole interaction with the Master R is there. And I think looking at Madame Blavatsky's um, interactions with her Mahatmas, there's one biography of her by K. Paul Johnson, I think it is, who says these were actually living people at her time, not beings living up in some secret fastness in the Himalayas. I don't know, but she was getting guidance from specific people who pushed her a long way into a deeper understanding of the mid-ground between Indian and Asian spirituality generally and Western forms of it. And she created a bridge that in itself, I'm not sure is worth a great deal anymore, but created something that other people have been able to build on. Key thing with the mysteries always is that it's not something that it's fixed. We're always moving on to the next phase. And you can see this with Crowley, who felt he had to overthrow Christianity. Um, I wouldn't say he did that alone, but Christianity is a very much a hollowed out and rather ugly thing at the present time. Mm-hmm. And we are gradually building this Thelemic world action by action, realization by realization, community by community, fraternity by fraternity, as we prepare for something that is going to be necessary in the decades to come. We're in for a rough ride, and these funny little groups that we have are not the only answer to the rough ride we're going through, but they are a key part of it. Mm-hmm. So learning to move in these 
meta zones between what we see happening in regular life and what we find happening in what seems at times to be the realm of imagination, but is something more than just daydreaming. That, I think, is where we find our answers and a greater answer for the world around us. Well, thank you once again for joining me, Edward. Okay, my pleasure. 93. 93. Thanks for listening. Find us online at torontofilema.org. Watch for events on Meetup and the usual social media spots. And join us again in the darkly splendid abode.